Be warned, today's episode contains depictions of drug use, PTSD, and violence. Please exercise caution for children under 13. How frustrating is it to be unable to sleep after midnight due to a restless mind? This is what our narrator must be feeling in this excerpt from What Was It? by Fitz James O'Brien. I resolved to go to sleep at once, so turning down my gas until nothing but a little blue point of light glimmered on the top of the tube, I composed myself to rest. The room was in total darkness. The atom of gas that still remained alight did not illuminate a distance of three inches round the burner. I desperately drew my arm across my eyes as if to shut out even the darkness and tried to think of nothing. It was in vain. The confounded themes touched on by Hammond in the garden kept obtruding themselves on my brain. I battled against them. I erected ramparts of would-be blankness of intellect to keep them out. They still crowded upon me. While I was lying still as a corpse, hoping that by a perfect physical inaction I should hasten mental repose, an awful incident occurred. A something dropped as it seemed from the ceiling plumb upon my chest, and the next instant I felt two bony hands encircling my throat, endeavoring to choke me. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's story is What Was It? written by Fitzjames O'Brien. An Irish-American soldier, journalist, and poet, O'Brien left a relatively small literary footprint. Yet, this spectral tale, written in 1859, was truly ahead of its time, and its premise has become a common trope of both ghost stories and science fiction to this day. I will narrate as Harry, an army officer who carries demons with him from his civilian life. In particular, an encounter so traumatic that he's kept it to himself for years. Coming up, the horrors of war trigger a terrifying past. (laughs) 
from the Journal of Lieutenant Harry Flanagan, Union Army, January 29, 1862. What do you consider to be the greatest element of terror? I was once asked this question by a dear friend of mine. I find myself thinking of it again on the eve of our deployment. As a soldier, I live beside fear every day. Even now, I hear the men of the 7th Regiment preparing to face their maker. Some cluster around the campfire, sharing hard tack and song to distract themselves. The ones who feel the most despair keep to their tents and pray. I sit apart from the enlisted men. Like them, I feel I am on the eve of a long journey from which I may not return. Unlike them, my fear is not of Johnny Reb. He may feel like a ferocious beast, but the Confederate soldier is still a man. I have fought far worse. Thus, I do not fear death on the battlefield. You cannot scare a man who has already faced the unimaginable. Which brings me to the reason I have begun this narrative. I have never disclosed the full story of my most terrifying encounter, and now that my death seems imminent, I feel it is imperative to do so. I cannot let the knowledge of this horror die with me. It began five years ago, in May, when I left the boarding house on Bleecker Street. Our landlady was moving uptown, you see, and she offered her boarders to come with her. The new house was on 26th Street. It had been cheap for her to rent due to the building's unnatural reputation. Mrs. Moffat was a practical sort of woman. She didn't believe in ghosts or hauntings. The rest of us, well, our opinions on the subject varied, but we were largely thrilled by the prospect of living in a haunted house. For my part, I had made a small living selling ghost stories, but that particular well of imagination had run dry. Thus, I believed the chance to see a ghost might be the spark I needed to reignite my career. I entered that building a young man. I was ready to be shocked, terrified, and inspired by what we found. The neighbors told us that the house's furniture moved on its own, the doors opened and closed, and candles would never stay lit. They reported hearing unnatural noises, even in the light of day. My fellow boarders and I were eager to witness these spectral events for ourselves. So imagine our surprise when we encountered nothing. We sat awake in the study almost every night for the first week, but the closest thing we saw to a ghost was the smoke from our various pipes. Two months passed without a single supernatural encounter. We were disheartened to say the least, but we went about our lives as we did before. I all but shelved my ghost story notion and applied for a job as a magazine editor. The only thing I considered extraordinary about those months was my burgeoning friendship with another lodger. Dr. Hammond and I shared similar intellectual interests and one particular vice. We kept our smoking of opium discreet. It was an evening ritual between the two of us, set in the back garden. Now, let me be clear. It was not a hedonistic or a reckless practice. What we did was smoke and engage in intellectual discussion. We explored topics that the opium would enhance. It was a scientific exploration of the mind. On the night of July 10th, however, as we sat deep in conversation, Hammond 
asked a troubling question. Harry, he said, what do you think is the greatest element of terror? I did not know how to answer. I had seen many things in my life that I might consider terrifying. The sight that inspired my first ghost story, for instance. Just then, it appeared to me against my will. A woman carried downstream by a deep and rapid river. I had been looking out a window some sixty feet above the water and could do nothing to help her. I could only watch and listen to her screams as the current swept her into the rapids. A feeling of dread slipped under my skin. The opium did little to help. The numbness and euphoria were making me think about the moment of death when a soul is finally separated from the body. This I found profoundly disturbing. But I tried to keep myself collected. After all, Dr. Hammond was waiting for my answer. I told him I did not know what he meant. There was no single greatest element of fear. Fear was something personal to the individual. Hammond frowned. I am not sure I agree with you, Harry. I think fear is like pain. Even if a man has never experienced great torture or loss of limb, we have some innate sense of it. I suspect a similar awareness exists for fear. Hmm. There must be something more terrible than any other thing. That strange feeling of dread came over me again. I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Hammond, please, let us drop this morbid talk. Hammond put two fingers to the bridge of his nose and squeezed, like a man trying to pluck out a headache. Ugh, what's the matter with me tonight? My brain is teeming with awful thoughts. If I had your skill with a pen, I feel as if I could write a horror story like Hoffman. I forced myself to stand, tapping out my pipe as I did so. Well, if our discussion is becoming Hoffman-esque, I'm off to bed. Opium and nightmares should never be brought together. Good night, Hammond. The doctor seemed a little hurt by the abruptness of my departure. He gave an apologetic smile. Good night, Harry. Pleasant dreams to you. I tipped my hat. And to you, gloomy wretch, afrites, ghouls, and enchanters. I was in my room in five minutes, but my mind still refused to let go of our discussion. I slipped into bed, picking up a book to distract my increasingly morbid mind. Only then did I remember what I had been reading. Gudin's History of Monsters. I flung the book across the room. Reading about ghouls and goblins was the last thing I needed right now. I turned my lantern down until the flame was but a tiny blue flicker and closed my eyes. But I could not compose myself to rest. Every creak in my room sounded like the shriek of a lost soul. Hammond was my dearest companion, but he could be so confounding. I cursed him repeatedly as my mind was drawn back to his macabre question. What do you think? Stop it. I'm not trying to think. I'm trying to sleep is the greatest element. Fear is fear. It cannot be reduced to elements of terror. There she is again. The drowned woman's skirts torn to tatters by the rocks, tendrils of blood turning the river red. I could have run to the banks. 
I could have pulled her free. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Let me not think, let me not see, let me sleep. I do not know how long I laid there, trying in vain to sleep. A noise pierced my frenzied thoughts, and I became keenly aware of the impenetrable blackness all around me. An instant later, a body landed on my stomach. The air was knocked from my lungs. In the utter darkness, I could feel a pair of hands close around my throat. I am not sure why it chose me. Perhaps in my distressed state, I looked like weakened prey. But it was mistaken. I am an athlete, and the sudden attack caused a surge of energy in me. I pried the bony hands from around my throat and felt its dry, ashy skin rub harshly against mine. I had never before experienced such a wrestling match, ambushed as I was in the dark. They soon attempted to break free and retreat into the dark, but I wrapped my arms around their waist and held tight, carrying us both to the floor. I eventually managed to pin them below me, holding a knee to the small of their back. Extricating one of my arms, I reached for my gas lamp and turned it up as high as it would go. Light flooded the room, and I screamed. Pinned beneath me on the floor was nothing. Not the slightest disturbance. And yet I could still feel a form writhing against me on the floorboards, corporeal and breathing as heavily as I was. My senses struggled to make sense of this awful paradox. I had not been dreaming. There was a something on my floor, a something of flesh and blood that was invisible to human eyes. Good heavens, Harry. What has happened? I looked up to see Hammond in the doorway. His expression was not one of horror, but concern. I must have looked like I was suffering some form of fit. In my shock, all I could say was, I can't see it. I can't see it. A look of worry flashed across Hammond's face. Harry, you have been smoking too much opium. The thing writhed beneath me as I struggled to tell Hammond what had happened. Then I guided the doctor's hand carefully to where the thing lay pinned on the floor. A wild cry of horror escaped his lips. He too had felt it. Don't just stand there, Hammond. Help me restrain it, I cried. Hammond cast about the room and soon found a length of cord which we used to bind the thing's legs and arms. Finally free of my duty to hold it down, I sprawled on the floor, panting heavily. When I could muster my strength, I allowed Hammond to throw a coat over my shoulders and drag me out of the room. Once safely in the hallway, he hissed at me. What the devil is that thing? I had no answer for him, only an equally disturbing question. Now that we had the thing captured, what would we do with it? Coming up, Harry and Hammond try to control the uncontrollable. 
Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. February 11th, 1862. I have been transferred from the 7th New York Guard to the staff of General Frederick W. Lander. Today we begin our march south and may see some proper action before too long. Not all my news is bleak, however, for I saw a familiar face in this camp, a certain Dr. Hammond, who I have not spoken to since the summer of 1857. I am equally delighted and chilled by this discovery, for I have spent many recent nights ruminating on the events of that July when he and I captured an indescribable horror. Our eyes met across the camp, and I could still see a flicker of the affection we once shared. We spoke that night in my tent, sharing jibes like old friends. But finally, I had to ask, do you remember the enigma we left at 26th Street? He nodded. He too had been dwelling on that summer. His presence made me realize a slight dishonesty in my previous entry. My encounter with the invisible monster was shocking, but it is not fear that keeps the thing fresh in my mind. It is my memory of the weeks that followed. When we had recovered our wits, we tied the strange invisible figure to my bedposts. The mattress sank beneath its writhing form giving us reassurance that it was still there. Hammond said, Harry, this is awful, but not unaccountable. I stammered, Not unaccountable? Nothing like this has ever existed before. Hammond took my hand to calm me. He said, Think, Harry. It's solid, tangible, yet we cannot see it. Something like it does exist. Pure glass, for instance. It's transparent, is it not? Yet we can touch it. It's perfectly natural. I sighed and told him that was all well and good, but glass is not living, and thus an insufficient comparison to the living thing before us. The doctor threw up his hands. I don't know what it is, he said, but please the gods I will, with your assistance, thoroughly investigated. By this point, the entire house had heard the commotion from my room, and the halls were teeming with our disgruntled housemates. Our landlady, Mrs. Moffat, demanded to know what was the matter. 
we told her there was a thing currently tied to my bed. Her eyes narrowed and she looked between the two of us. She must have thought this was some kind of innuendo. So we took her inside and showed her the shifting indentation upon the mattress. Her eyes widened in shock, but she did not scream. Release that thing! Toss it outside like any other pest, she said. We objected immediately. This creature was a marvel that required study. Moreover, it was also dangerous. Who knows what it would do once we let it go? It could even be a part of a colony which might return to seek revenge upon me, the man who had detained it, or Hammond, my accomplice. Hammond convinced her to let us keep it around for observation. Another week, no longer. And so we set to work studying the pitiful creature. First, we passed our hands over it, trying to ascertain its writhing shape. After many days of sketching and estimating based on the indentation in the mattress, we realized how imprecise our methods were. Finally, it occurred to Hammond to contact a friend of his, Dr. Winter, who could make a cast of it using plaster of Paris. After many urgent trips downtown, Hammond returned with the man and we set to work. Once he'd gotten over his shock at the thing, of course. He first sedated the enigma with chloroform. Then, when its struggling ceased, he cast the creature one piece at a time so as not to smother it. And his results were astonishing. It was not over four feet in height, and its limbs were thick with muscles. Its hands were small, like that of a boy, but with knotted bulbs instead of knuckles. Its face was more hideous than anything I had imagined. Ancient mythology held that man had been made out of clay. If that were the case, this creature looked like the clay had never seen an oven and had been left to dry in the sun, melting and hardening into an unnatural shape. After a week passed, Mrs. Moffat threatened us with eviction if we did not remove it, and Dr. Hammond once again came to my rescue. He told her that if she insisted, we would leave. However, we would not take the creature with us. It appeared in her house, and thus that was where it belonged. He continued, saying she could remove it herself if she wished. As you can imagine, Mrs. Moffat had no intention of doing so. Soon the enigma's breathing became raspy and grating. With shock, we realized that the creature must be famished. To keep it alive, we placed food and drink within reach. Neither of these were touched. Its breathing was noticeably more labored with each passing day, the struggles against its bonds weaker. I found myself wondering about its sentience. Was this a dumb beast or an intelligent creature who must think us monsters for torturing it so? Many a night I lay awake in Hammond's room thinking about the enigma trapped on the bed down the hall. Even my revulsion at its appearance paled next to my discomfort with this situation. It was wasting away, and we were powerless to do anything about it. No, 
That is not true. It was well within our power to save its life. We could have released it. But to do so would mean risking yet another attack. And then, it was far too late. A fortnight after we had captured the thing, it died. We found it cold and stiff in my bed that morning and discreetly buried it in the backyard. Mrs. Moffat was elated. With the thing dead, she would stop losing tenants and could go back to treating the building's reputation as a silly ghost story. Guilt ate away at Hammond and me. We gave it a funeral, though no words were spoken over the seemingly empty grave. We knew what we had done was monstrous. I could not even convince myself that it was self-defense in the end. We left the building not long after and carried this burden with us. It was the greatest sin Hammond and I had ever committed. Five years later, we were reunited in the Union Army. We spoke of that strange July for the first time in years, a soldier and an army doctor sharing an unspeakable secret. Hammond said to me, You know, Winter still has the cast of the creature. He's considering making copies and submitting them to art museums, which I told him would be quite dishonest. I gulped. I still see it, Hammond, on the insides of my eyelids. Or, well, the shape of the cast, anyways. It is easier for me to sleep in this camp than a lavish hotel. Lying on a mattress makes me think of how it wasted away. What must that have felt like? Dr. Hammond reached out and drew me into an embrace. We stood there for an endless moment, neither of us saying a word. There was nothing to say. Even in silence, I knew he needed comfort as much as I did. There was nothing the war could bring that could be worse than the guilt and horror we both carried. Undated entry, 1862. They have come for me. As God is my witness, they have come for me. Let me start at the beginning, or as near as I can. This was only my second engagement as a soldier. We surprised a rebel scouting party in the small hours of the morning, and the skirmish that commenced was vicious. Separated from my men in the confusion, I saw it again. It was my enigma, or another of its species. Its shape was clearly outlined, an absence in the fog and cannon smoke, crouched and staring. It must have tracked me all the way from New York. I discharged my navy colt at the shape. It let out a ghastly shriek and I lost sight of it. Perhaps it is slain, perhaps not. I did not stay to feel around the grass for its carcass. Instead, I ran through the mist, hollering for my unit. Another of the invisible creatures then latched itself onto my back. I felt it attempting to bite through my collar. I jammed the barrel of my pistol into its mouth and filled its gullet with hot lead. It released me, and I kept running. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear Union cries and the drummer playing John Brown's song. 
The sounds of victory were sweet, but so distant. The earth around me was dotted with misshapen footprints. I was facing an unseen army. My pistol spent, I continued forward with my saber in hand, ready to strike. Was there no path through this infernal fog? Confederate and Union bodies started appearing in my path, enlisted men and officers alike who had yet to be collected. Before me, I saw something that made my blood turn to ice. I thought at first it was a wounded officer stumbling through the fog, but then I realized it was a corpse suspended in midair by an invisible force. As I watched, the man separated. His limbs and flesh ripped from the body and disappeared into the air like scraps of cloud. The things were devouring the carcass. I rushed forward, swinging my saber at the space around the Reb. I felt my blade plunge into flesh, and the things shrieked. Then the body collapsed like a marionette whose strings I had cut. My fate became clear to me. Either I rejoin the ranks and continue our march south, or they will devour me as revenge for what I did to their kin. Another two surprised me. One fixed its jaws around my heel, another went for my saber. The former I kicked away, the latter I slashed to ribbons. I'm hiding beneath a small hillock now, and I hear no signs of my pursuers. Once I set these words down, I intend to make one last spirited attempt to rejoin my men. But even if I reach camp and surround myself with others, I may never be safe. You can only defend yourself against the unknown for so long. One thought circles my mind like a mantra. The question I was never able to answer. What was it? What was it? What? Fitz James O'Brien's 1859 tale is a formative work in literary horror for many reasons, but what sets this story apart is how O'Brien employs invisibility as the monster's primary feature. What we see now as a commonplace trope could have been an unspeakable affront to nature to 1850s readers. But what makes O'Brien's work resonant is not just the writing itself, but also the life that produced it. Today's adaptation took a step beyond O'Brien's original tale to incorporate aspects of the author's life. Like the protagonist of this story, Fitz James O'Brien was a drifter who often struggled to make ends meet. Born in Ireland around 1828, he immigrated to America at the age of 24, hoping to make his fortune in the United States. But this fortune never came. However, this was not the only similarity O'Brien shared with his story's protagonist. O'Brien's friend, 
author William Winter described him as a unique man, writing, In his face and carriage there was the strong and splendid freedom of the wild woods. Yet, Winter goes on to describe O'Brien also as a haunted individual with a soul like a hunted vagabond, standing sentinel over its own desolation. According to Winter, the story of What Was It was written at odd moments while temporarily staying at the home of a friend. Winter writes, These details have a trivial sound, but somehow they help to give a lifelike picture of the man, displaying the strange circumstances under which his literature was produced and the still stranger nature that produced it. The story is itself just a passing reference in Winter's recollections. Given O'Brien's frequent money troubles, it might have passed into obscurity, if not for the fate of its author. When the American Civil War began, O'Brien enlisted in the Union Army. He was a keen athlete and former soldier, who one friend described as a firm disciple of the Church of St. Biceps. The military suited his bullish nature, but O'Brien did not forsake his literary ambitions while at war. Thomas E. Davis, a close companion of his, recalled that O'Brien promised that when he returned from the military, he would settle down and devote himself to writing a great work he had already begun to formulate. But this magnum opus would remain locked in his mind forever. In February of 1862, O'Brien led a small contingent of cavalry into a skirmish with the Confederate Army, where he received a wound in his left shoulder. The army surgeons assumed at first that this was a minor injury. However, O'Brien contracted tetanus and passed away two months later at the age of 34. After O'Brien's death, William Winter set about gathering his friend's disparate works, both poetry and short fiction. These pieces were published as a collection in 1881, ensuring that Fitzjames O'Brien's legacy would not be forgotten. War creates ghosts, not just of people, but also of their potential. Between soldiers and civilians, how many poets have we lost? to war? How many stories have perished, unwritten, on the battlefield? Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Stacey Lee Nemec and Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.
Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.